0: We'll continue making our way through Colossians. This morning's passage from God's holy word is Colossians 2, 8 through 10. In the Pew Bible, you will find this passage on page 983. I'd like to again encourage you to say thank you to those uh, who, who come not just this Sunday, but often on many Sundays to prepare the the church grounds so that we can come in here and worship the living God. So if you see Jack or Jim or any of those who, you know, have, have plowed, have shoveled, they got here early, they've done a lot of work, and we want to thank them for their service for Christ church. So please do that. Say hello to them this morning and thank them. Colossians 2, 8 through 10. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. This is God's word for his people. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. And now let's pray for his help. As your people, it is wonderful to sing God. Of your holiness to be in awe of your glory and who you are you have revealed your holiness to us you are set apart there is no one like you triune God father son and spirit you are above and beyond and before all things and we your people want to worship you holy God together this morning we confess our need for you this morning that by your word and spirit you would guide us as the spirit helps us to understand, your spirit helps us to understand and delight in your word and all of its truths from the warnings to the encouragements to, to the precious gospel realities that you have revealed to us through your word. May your spirit help us to understand and believe and apply and obey all that you have for us in your word this morning. We give you thanks, God for your continued love and graciousness towards us. You saved us, you have justified us through the finished work of Christ. He is our righteousness, and you continue to work in us so that we are more and more like him. We are so grateful. We want to become more like your son. We rejoice and we rest in the gospel this morning seeking to grow in grace, not because we're trying to earn something from you, Father, but because of what Christ has already earned for us, and we want to enjoy it more and more, all that you have for us in Christ. Father, we lift up our brothers and sisters who are grieving, who are suffering, who are mourning, whether it be because of the loss of a family member, a friend, a loved one, a neighbor. Lord, please encourage their hearts this morning. Remind them in the songs that we sing, the prayers that we pray, the word that is preached of your continued, your steadfast, loving kindness towards them. Refresh them and strengthen them by your word this morning. Father, help us to to see you more rightly this morning, to have a better understanding of the gospel and its implications for our lives as Christians. And I do pray, Father, that you would be working in the hearts of those that are hard this morning, whether it be a season of rebellion, a time of doubt, whatever it might be, Lord, may you refresh and strengthen your people, and may you work in the hearts of those who are not believing the gospel today. May you show them their need for Christ, that he is the only hope for sinners, and may you do what only you can do, what you have done in our hearts. Grant them repentance and faith so that they see Christ for who he is and treasure him with us. We pray all of this, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, for his glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The U.S. Department of State Bureau of Consular Affairs exists to protect the lives and and serve the interests of U.S. citizens abroad. Now, one way that that they seek to accomplish this mission is by providing travel advisories or warnings so that Americans can be informed of the potential risks of traveling to specific countries. Now, if you haven't done this before, I guess you're supposed to, before you leave the country traveling, you're supposed to go to this government website, click on the country that you plan to go to, and then check and see what the government says about this country. Now, their advisories, the Bureau of Consular Affairs advisories, are organized into four levels or groups. A level one comes with a recommendation to exercise normal precautions. This is the lowest level that a country can be assigned. Canada, our neighbor to the north, is a level one country, and so is Albania. Now, this is especially relevant because Albania is a country that our church has sent many people to over the past five years and will continue to send many people to. And and that's because we have a partnership with an Albanian church plant called Disciples Church in Albania's capital city, Tirana. A level two country comes with a recommendation to exercise increased caution. Mexico, France, Spain, the UK currently all have a level two advisory. Now, these things change, so Albania could move to a level two, and some of these countries could be uh, moving to a level one. Now, some of you might be surprised, though, at thinking Albania, for Americans, is at this time safer for you to travel to than Mexico or France or even to England. Uh, but, but let that maybe be an encouragement to you, maybe some, some, some nudging from God that, that you should consider going on the next trip to Albania. Level three, it comes with a recommendation from the U.S. government to reconsider travel. Turkey, Sudan, Nigeria, and parts of Russia fall into the Level 3 advisory. Level 4 comes with this clear recommendation. Do not travel. It probably doesn't surprise many of you to hear that one of the countries with a Level 4 advisory is North Korea. Here's some additional instructions from the U.S. government to Americans considering a, a sightseeing trip the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, which if you know anything about North Korea, it is neither Democratic or the People's Republic. The government says, do not travel to North Korea due to the serious risk of arrest and long-term detention of U.S. nationals. If you receive a special validation to travel to North Korea. So even to get into North Korea, on the U.S. government side, you have to have validation. You have to have this special permission. If somehow, for some reason, you get that validation, this is what they say. Draft a will and designate appropriate insurance beneficiaries and or power of attorney. Discuss a plan with loved ones regarding care, custody of children, pets, property, belongings, non-liquid assets, funeral wishes, etc. Now, if North Korea no longer sounds appealing for your next family vacation, how about Afghanistan? which also has an advisory level of four. Here's a portion from the U.S. government's warning on traveling to Afghanistan. Do not travel to Afghanistan. Due to crime, terrorism, civil unrest, and armed conflict, travel to all areas of Afghanistan is unsafe because of high levels of kidnappings, hostage-taking, suicide bombings, widespread military combat operations, landmines, terrorists, and insurgent attacks, including attacks using vehicle-borne or other improvised explosive devices. In light of these warnings from the U.S. government, you and I should not take a trip to North Korea or Afghanistan, because if we did, it's very possible, even likely, that we would be arrested, detained for a long period of time, kidnapped, taken hostage, or even murdered. So take that advice from the government. Well, what does all of this have to do with this morning's scripture passage? Now, maybe the Lord will use all of that I've just said to help you redirect family vacation plans. But but there's a connection to be made with this morning's passage. In the opening verse, the first passage, uh, the first verse in this passage, the Apostle Paul gives a similar warning to what we've just been given But his warning is not that citizens of an earthly country remain physically safe by not traveling to dangerous places. If you just look at the itinerary, the travel plans of the Apostle Paul, who frequently went into dangerous places to preach the gospel, I'm not sure that Paul would be the one to warn us about that. Rather, Paul's warning in this passage is that citizens of heaven, because that's what Christians are, citizens of heaven, remain spiritually safe by not embracing dangerous false teaching. To the Colossian church, Paul writes in verse eight: "See to it that no one takes you captive." Here, Paul is is not like the concerned friend who might come to you and and kind of nervous about your response, say something like, "Now, now listen, listen to this. You, you can take it or leave it. Depends on whatever you want to do, but." But you might not want to listen to those people who are telling you that they have the secret to spiritual growth. Just take it or leave it, whatever you think. I'm just, I just want to give you some friendly advice. That's not how Paul is warning the Colossians and ultimately the church in verse 8. Paul, who is committed to defending the gospel and protecting Christ's church, is giving an urgent warning to Christians concerning a real danger that is just as dangerous today as it was in the first century. And sadly, so many Christians don't think so. False teaching, whatever. It's not a big deal. Not a a big concern. Well, it should be. The Greek word translated as captive here in the ESV carries the seriousness of Paul's warning. This word means to carry off as spoils of war, kidnap, exploit, or to make a prey of. So Paul is saying, Christians... Watch out. Wake up to the danger that is before you. Make sure that you don't get kidnapped by these false teachers who will lead you away from Jesus Christ and carry you off as spoils, as trophies of their ministry. Kind of showing you off. Look at all these people that I've duped. Paul says, don't fall for it. Watch out. Be careful. I think if Paul's warning were to be categorized by the Bureau of Consular Affairs, it would be a level four warning. And it's important to realize that just as the U.S. government warns its citizens in order to protect them from physical harm, our God who loves us infinitely more than the U.S. government loves us, if the government can love us, I don't know if that's even possible, uh, our God who loves us, who sent God the Son to die on the cross so that we would be redeemed and forgiven of our sins and reconciled to him, warns us in order to protect us from spiritual harm. And the warning that he gives us in verse 8 about false teaching is only one of many, hundreds, and depending on how you count them, maybe even thousands of warnings that we find in God's word, throughout God's word about false prophets, teachers, and preachers. This is not like some side thing. You read the New Testament, and, and you start to see that so much of what was written was in response. Yes, it was positive, it was encouraging, it was, K. Lovey and all that stuff. Some good stuff, some encouraging words. They, they, they had to be taught the truth of the gospel. But there's a lot in the New Testament that has to do with false teaching. Here's just, the, not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament. Here's just a, a, a few passages, one from the Old through the prophet Jeremiah, God warns his people not to listen to false prophets. Jeremiah twenty three sixteen and 17. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, It shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. I think it's so important for us church, to realize that even in the Old Testament, even in the Old covenant, God was warning His people about false teachers. There were these people wandering around just like there are today who say, "Don't worry about it. Holiness of God, the wrath of God. Oh Put that out of your mind. That is not encouraging. That is not going to make you feel better. What you need to know is just about God's love. Yes, you need to know God, about God's love, but you need to know all of what Scripture says about God's love, that his wrath is upon those who reject Christ, that there's no hope outside of Jesus, that you need to turn from your sin and trust in him. Well, there are false prophets back then, just like there are today, that say, you know, life is good, don't worry about it. God's wrath is it's not a big deal. Just live your life as you please. Just, just kind of be a good person. Don't worry about that stuff. This has been going on since the beginning. In Matthew 16, the Lord Jesus Christ uses the disciples' forgetfulness as an opportunity to warn his disciples. He's always giving these teaching moments to his disciples. And we find one related to false teaching in Matthew 16. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then in the five verses in between, they're just confused. What, what? Leaven? Pharisees? Sadducees? Should we just avoid buying their bread? What's going on here? What is he talking about? And then later on in, in, in verses 11 and 12, we get the answer. They don't know what's going on. So Paul or Jesus makes it clear what he's talking about. How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus is saying, don't listen to what they have to say because it's going to make its way, it's going to work its way into you, and you will be confused. It will be a distortion of the truth. In his letters to Titus and Timothy, who are serving local churches, Paul gives them warnings that they are to pass on to other Christians. We find one of them in Titus Titus 3. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. And so Paul says, be careful for these people that get caught up in all this goofy stuff. Who are, who are going off into genealogies and dissensions. They're, they're, all, they're, they're focused on the wrong thing. Warn them. Show them grace. Tell them they're, they're headed off in the wrong direction. They're, they're, they're getting into things that are going to take them away from Christ. But then after you warn them once and then warn them again, just let them go. Because ultimately, this person is likely to become a false teacher. If they have any influence, they have any hold on other Christians, what they grab hold of, what they say is the secret, they're going to they're bring other Christians towards. In 2 Timothy 4, 14 and 15, Paul goes so far to name names. Something that you're not supposed to do in today's evangelical culture. You start naming specific names and books, oh, you're mean! Well, let's just follow Paul's example. Somebody's a false teacher, they have a public influence, they need to be called out so that Christians know. There's warnings in Scripture. When I was a teenager, I hated warnings. I hated them. Every time somebody would warn me, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, you know what, you don't know. You don't know how strong I am, how smart I am, how tough I am. What are you warning me for? Don't you think I can handle this? I've come to know and learn, one, because of my own sinfulness and my need for Christ continually, I need to be warned. Whether it's my wife warning me about something in our house, watch out for this, whether it's one of you warning me about something else going on, I need to be warned. Now, sometimes the warning serves to to keep me from going into something that that I shouldn't go into. Sometimes it brings me out of it. The same for for you, Christian. Warnings are good. And sometimes those warnings need to be clear. They need to have a name. And so we have one in 2 Timothy 4, 14 and 15. Alexander, the coppersmith. Just think about it. This guy is memorialized forever in Scripture as a false teacher, as somebody to, to, to avoid. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Watch out for Alexander. He's against the gospel. Avoid him. John gives this warning in 2 John 8-11. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Here John is saying, there are people who are going to come around claiming to be Christians, and they they're not teaching the truth. Watch out for them. You need to abide in the teaching that you have been given. Just like last week we saw there's this continuity in teaching, in in gospel truth, in the scriptures. It's building upon what has been laid, that foundation is Christ. Anything that does not fit with Christ, does not line up with the scriptures, it needs to be set aside. It's not going to be helpful. At best, it's going to be a distraction. It, It might just distract you from Christ for a little bit. At worst, it's going to take you down a path that you do not want to go, maybe even for years. And I've seen that. Christians, genuine born-again Christians, looking for some secret, some special blessing, some experience with God, wandering off into these things for, for seasons of life. And then they come back weary and, and tired, knowing that that stuff didn't give them any more of Christ. It was a distraction. So if God gives us warnings in his word to protect us from danger, and clearly he does, he does, they're all over the place, just read the scriptures, then why don't we listen to these warnings? Why don't we always listen to these warnings? Well, the answer is often because of ignorance or because of arrogance. Ignorance or arrogance. Ignorance happens when someone is a new Christian. They, they, they haven't been taught these things. They've, they've just been born again, and they don't know sound doctrine. Or when someone is an old Christian, meaning like age-wise, maybe they, had, they, they, they were converted. They were generally converted at 20. And they've never really grown or matured out of the new Christian stage for whatever reason. Maybe they, they've been a part of a church that doesn't preach the Bible. They give them three steps to your best life now. Um, they're, they're very culture-driven rather than scripture-driven. Whatever it is, when someone is a new Christian or they haven't matured out of the new Christian stage, well, they're going to fall for false teaching. They, they don't have sound doctrine They're unable to recognize that what they're hearing from people claiming to be Christians, and that's what the best false teachers do, they say they're Christians. People claiming to be Christians, these people are really teaching false teaching. So rather than avoid a false teaching, they consider it, and in some cases, they embrace it. This is why Paul, in the, the passage just before this, in Colossians 2, 7, Calls for Christians to be established in the faith. Christian, you've got to be strengthened. You've got to be stable. You've got to be solid in God's word. It doesn't mean, again, that everybody has to go to seminary. It doesn't mean that everybody needs to be a biblical scholar. It does not mean that you need to read the Bible, know the Bible, love the Bible, study the Bible to some degree. You've got to be in the word. God grows his people. He strengthens his people. He blesses his people as they interact with and understand his word more and more. to and fro by the waves, and cared about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Now, often we go to this passage and, and we, we use it to remind ourselves that, that we believe in the priesthood of believers, that, that the church functions, we all have roles and places, and that the, the, there, is, there is work for all of us to do, that, that the evangelist, the, the shepherd, pastor, the teacher, they don't exist to build their own ministry, they exist to serve the church. But sometimes we might miss, and and often I think we do, we miss what this passage teaches us about the purpose of leaders in the church. What are pastors, evangelists, teachers, shepherds, what did the apostles and the prophets, what what did all this this serve to do? What's the goal? Maturity. So a pastor's job is not to make you feel good, to to just give you-I- I'm a hugger, you know. Men, if you want a hug, you know, come on up, up to me after service. I will give you a hug. Let's not get a line going here because I mentioned that. But, 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 but I'm a hugger. But my job as a pastor is not to hug you and to make you spiritually just feel good. If you're in sin, my job is to preach the word and let the Holy Spirit convict you, show you, reveal to you that you are in sin, that the way that you're going is, is towards destruction, and that you need to return to Christ. That's my job. My job and the elders' job, the other pastors, elders, we see them as the same position in the church. All those who lead in the church of Christ is to help you mature in Christ. Now, will you feel good oftentimes when, when this happens? Yes. You'll be stronger. Uh, I was talking to a brother who was sharing with me that, he, that um, he, he took my counsel to share the gospel with a family member who was near death and he was thankful for, for that counsel and that he did it. And... He was thankful because he, he knew that he did what God told him to do, that, that God tells us to share the gospel with people and hear this pressing reality of his, his loved one's coming death. It, it, it motivated him, and my encouragement motivated him to share the gospel. Was it easy? No. Did he leave that conversation when I encouraged him and his wife to share the gospel with them? Like, great, I just feel so wonderful. I'm going to share the gospel with somebody that, that may hate me for doing that, and then is going to die. What? No. But a good feeling came as they obeyed Christ's call to share the gospel, to to tell people who desperately need to hear about Jesus about Jesus. So there's going to be a good feeling, but my job as a pastor, the job of leaders in the church is not just to make you feel good when you leave church, but to help you mature and to grow out of being a new Christian or an adolescent Christian into a mature, godly Christian. See, church discipleship is not only commanded by our Lord, in the Great Commission, it's also essential to helping Christians hold to the gospel and avoid false teaching. A stronger church is discipling their people, and one of the results of that is that the people in that church, the members, those who are committed to that local church, are better able to identify false teaching. That's one of the signs of a healthy church. It's not everybody's happy when they come into church. It's that people are maturing and growing in Christ. Well, the second reason, arrogance, or another word the Bible uses is pride, happens when a Christian has an inflated view of themselves and that they believe that they are too strong, too wise, too smart, too mature to ever be duped or tricked or to fall for a false teaching. Church history is riddled with people that were extremely wise, intelligent, who either became false teachers or were duped for a time by false teaching. And when a Christian is arrogant, when they're filled with pride in this way, even if they have a, a rock-solid doctrine of Scripture and the Gospel, there is going to be a serious disconnect between their doctrine and their life. And it's only a matter of time before this arrogant Christian falls. As Proverbs sixteen eighteen states, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We can all fall. We can all be tempted to grab hold of some false teaching, some, some mumbo-jumbo garbage that is not biblical and faithful to the gospel. And so we, we need to be aware of that. We need to be willing. We need to be humble. We need to be teachable. We need to be submitting to the scriptures and taking warnings from people, not acting like that teenager who, who doesn't want to hear a warning from their parents. Remember, we are children. The most mature, godly Christian is a child of God in need of warnings. So friends, let's be neither ignorant or arrogant this morning as we consider this warning in God's word and how it applies to us and to this church. Look again at verse 8. Here Paul describes the false teaching or heresy that he's specifically warning against, confronting, telling the church not to be kidnapped by as philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. Now, the philosophy that that Paul is talking about here is not the same type of philosophy that that many of us think that modern philosophy, though it can be similar in that just as the philosophy that Paul speaks of in this passage will lead people away from Jesus Christ, so does modern philosophy that does not submit to Jesus Christ as the Lord of philosophy because that too will end with people being led away from Christ. It ultimately, modern philosophy that doesn't submit to the Lordship of Christ, what it is is a very clever way for people to convince themselves and other people that God does not exist or if he does exist, that he did not take on human flesh and die on the cross because we need to be forgiven. So it becomes this really clever, very you know, uh, intellectual way to deny God's existence or the God of the Bible. But in Paul's day, philosophy was a word used to describe the various religious groups and cults that claim to have a deeper knowledge of spiritual mysteries and have special access to God. As we've seen throughout our time in Colossians already, that's exactly what these false teachers in Colossae were claiming to have. They had the secrets. You want to grow, Christian? You need these secrets. You want to experience more of God? You want to have a greater, a new encounter with God? Well, well, we can provide that to you with what we have learned. But Paul says that what these philosophers teach is empty deceit. Their message was not full of God's truth. It was devoid of it. Now at some point, the credibility of these false teachers would have been challenged. Some godly Christian, new Christian, remember this is a new church, already facing false teachers. If they faced them and they could press against them and overcome these false teachers, so can we, and the church will overcome them. Uh, But if, if, if these false teachers had come to the church, some godly Christian at some point would have said, hey, wait a second, wait a second, where did this new teaching come from? They would have wanted to know what Why should we Christians in this church believe what you're telling us? We heard the message from Epaphras. He preached this wonderful, glorious gospel that sinners like us are saved by grace through faith in Christ and Christ alone. And now you're bringing this this message that in order to grow in Christ, we need to, to buy into what you're saying. Where does this come from? From what Paul writes next, it seems that the false teachers pointed to tradition claiming that their, tradition, their teachings were rooted in ancient religious practices. They were saying, well, wait a second, no, this isn't new teaching. This is ancient teaching. Paul's response is that the tradition that, that they are speaking of is man-made. It's not of God, it's human tradition. This tradition does not legitimize or give credibility to the false teacher's message. Paul says, get rid of it. Don't let them trick you. Now, as I've said before, and I'll say again, tradition is not bad in and of itself. We're not a church against all tradition. When tradition is in line with Scripture and submits to Scripture, it's a blessing. It's a wonderful gift. Tradition is not, in and of itself, bad. But if tradition trumps Scripture, if tradition contradicts Scripture, well, then it's bad and needs to be set aside. When Amy and I got married, we started a family tradition of eating cinnamon rolls on Christmas morning. I think it kind of came along with the kids. I'm not sure that before the kids came along, we, wake up, we woke up that early on Christmas morning. Uh, but, but along with the kids and, and needing to wake up early, uh, we, we said, let's make some cinnamon rolls on Christmas morning. It's, it's a nice tradition. I look forward to it every single year. And every year, it's kind of gotten better and better. We went from like the, the cheapest ones to like the nicer store-bought ones. And then we started to make homemade cinnamon rolls the night before or a couple of days before we do the dough with the kids. It's just it's awesome. I, I look forward to it. And, and we don't eat a ton of cinnamon rolls. So this, this is awesome. I mean, Christmas morning, celebrating the birth of Christ, eating cinnamon rolls, drinking coffee. Yes, what a great tradition. In fact, this past Christmas Eve, uh, when I realized that we didn't have quick-rising yeast for the dough, well, I went out and, and I went to Target before it closed and I got some. And, and if you remember, our family was still going through the stomach flu thing. So I gathered enough energy and strength, even as my stomach was still rattling and I was still, you know, it was getting better, but it was still, you know, edgy to to make my way in the snow all the way to Target to get some quick rising yeast that I paid way too much for and then bring it back. And it's probably going to go bad, but it was all worth it to keep this family tradition alive. One of the great blessings was as I was looking—actually, as, as I was coming in the store, one of, my, one of uh, the, the brothers in this church, a, a Christian in this church, was, was coming in to buy groceries, too, kind of last minute. So I got to pray with him, and that was kind of my fellowship with other Christians outside of my family on Christmas Eve. Uh, and, and I got to say, there's, there's nothing wrong with our cinnamon roll tradition. Nothing wrong. I mean, you might try and make an argument. It's not very healthy. Is that the best way to take care of the temple that God has given you in your body? I'm not going to go into that or all, all that right now. But there would be something wrong with my tradition, our family's tradition of eating cinnamon rolls on Christmas morning, if I told you that having cinnamon rolls on Christmas morning is the secret to having closer communion with god that it, that if you just you just spend the time the night before, you know, going out to Target or wherever, get your quick rising yeast, you make the dough, you do all that work, you, you, you cook it in the oven, then you bring it out and you sit down on the couch and you start to eat that, that cinnamon roll on Christmas morning, it'll, it'll be this amazing experience. You're like, whoo, like God will just appear to you and it'll be sweet and amazing communion and fellowship with God. If I start to go there with this family tradition, well, it's wrong. If I tell you that if you just, if you just do what, what we do as a family and eat cinnamon rolls on Christmas morning, you will be holier, then, then I've taken tradition too far. I know it's a little humorous of an example, but that's something like what the false teachers in Colossae were saying. Though they weren't trying to draw authority from the tradition of eating cinnamon rolls on Christmas morning, they were drawing authority from supposed ancient Jewish and pagan traditions. Friends, here there is a clear and direct connection to the Colossian heresy and some of the false teachings that we have already or we will come across today. Traditions and and practices that that Christians, maybe even some Christians that you know, or maybe even you have been kind of duped into practicing some of these things over your Christian life. Some who who maybe once described themselves as or still do as Protestant, Evangelical, or Bible-believing Christians— have turned to ancient spiritual practices that we are not instructed to do in Scripture, claiming that these practices hold the secrets to spiritual growth, that they can provide Christians with greater experiences of God or with God, and that some of them can even protect Christians from evil, from Satan. Now, some of these practices are rooted in Jewish traditions, others in Orthodox or Roman Catholic practices, and, and others are rooted in Eastern religions. I, I have old friends that once reverted to celebrating obscure Jewish festivals, believing that it was the secret to Christian growth. And they started to try and convince all of us, that we're in that circle of, of friends, that we should all be practicing these Jewish traditions, ancient Jewish traditions. I've met people who claim to be Protestant Christians who partake in monastic practices that were rejected on biblical grounds during the Reformation. So people are going back and they're, they're, they're trying to find these secrets in these, these ancient practices that, that, that people used to do a long time ago that, that Christians have said, no, no, that's not the secret. That's not the secret. It's not found in Scripture. There are people professing to be Christians while blending in Hinduism or Buddhist beliefs or even New Age practices with Christianity. And that's so much of what has happened in American Christianity. We love the buffet religion. We shouldn't. I hope you don't, but that's the reality in, in big tent evangelicalism. Oh, this is a really interesting pilgrimage that the Hindus do. I, I, I want to be a part of it. So I've even heard of Christians going to... to these countries and they they partake in these other religious practices and they say, "Well, I'm worshiping God. It's just a, this need experience and, and I, I commune with God through going to the Buddhist." No, what are you doing? Christians going on pilgrimages, partaking in, in ancient spiritual rites, going to see or or getting or or even getting or buying or, or finding a relic that they think can protect them from harm if they have it in their pocket. It's superstitious. But wherever these ancient spiritual practices come from, they share this in common. They are human tradition. They're not rooted in Scripture. And someone might say, well, what's the harm in trying them? If I'm trusting in Christ, but I want to walk in a labyrinth while repeating the same word over and over in order to have some spiritual experience with God. I've heard of people doing that. Christians, supposed evangelical Christians, setting up a labyrinth, walking around it, and saying the same word over and over again. What's wrong if I want to meditate on a yoga mat to clear my mind of stress, even if all the people around me are worshiping some other god? What's wrong with chanting in Latin while I'm wearing a toga? I mean, I don't know how many people are doing that, but I'm sure it's a thing. What's wrong with lighting a candle for a dead loved one in hopes that it does them some good? What can it hurt? What's wrong if I go outside and I make a circle in the dirt or today in the snow and I stand in it and I claim God's protection and I, I call out to him to rain down his blessing upon me and my family? What's wrong if I, if I wear crystals that supposedly have spiritual power? Does it really matter if I do these things or other things if I'm not hurting anyone else? Paul's answer in this passage is yes, yes. Yes, it matters, Christian. This stuff is not neutral. It's not good. It comes from the elemental spirits of the world. Now, I admit there is much debate around exactly what Paul means by elemental spirits of the world. I looked at many commentaries that that took different positions on this. Some scholars think that Paul is referring to the material elements of which the universe is composed. So, like, the air, the earth, the fire, water— Uh, These things, that's what he's referring to, they all come from that, just earthly things. Others believe that he's referring to the elementary teachings of the world. This is basic, This this is silly stuff. If either of these are what he means, then he's saying that this false teaching is weak, it's worldly. Though they claim that that it gives great spiritual power and that it provides spiritual power to those who embrace it, it's really a bunch of silly superstition that has no power, no substance. It's a waste of your money. It's a waste of your time. Don't do it. So that that could be one one understanding of, of what he means by this phrase. On the other hand, some believe that elemental spirits of the world refers to the evil and demonic powers that are in this world that seek to control and enslave humanity. I tend to think that, that this second view makes the most sense, or this third view, depending on how you break up the first view. Paul is saying, I believe, that, that what is ultimately behind this false teaching is evil, because really, in the end, that's really where all false teaching, whether indirectly or directly, is traced back to the devil, evil, wickedness. But either way, whether Paul's point in this, in this warning, in this, this elemental spirits of the world, is that this false teaching comes from that which is weak in the world, or that which is worldly, or that which is wicked, it clearly is not neutral or good. Paul would not be okay with you rubbing crystals on your head and chanting uh, weird chants in Latin and lighting candles for your dead loved ones. He, he doesn't take a, you know, whatever. This is one of those gray Christian freedom places. No, there's other areas like that. Whether you drink a beer or a glass of wine, uh, there's some Christian freedom there. Whether you wear this or you wear that, there's Christian freedom. This is not Christian freedom. No, it's not neutral. It's not good. It's not okay. Paul says, church, don't fall for this stuff. It will lead you away from trusting in Jesus Christ. So then how can Christians avoid being taken captive? It's not just enough to warn. I'm a parent with four little boys, three of them, who really don't always respond that well. Four of them. I'll throw, uh, I'll throw, Titus, or, uh, I'll, I'll throw Titus in, who's, who's now at the place too, who really are not a big fan of the word no. No, don't touch that. No, you can't have, you can't have ice cream for lunch today. No, 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 no. I, I've learned that you don't just say no, you say yes. So don't do that, but do this. And Paul is like a good father in this passage, imitating our Father in heaven. And he doesn't just say, don't go there, don't do this. He gives us a yes in this passage. How can Christians avoid being taken captive, avoid being kidnapped by false teaching? Now, I I suppose before I tell you the answer that someone could say, well, you just gotta be a fast runner. And if God has given you the genes to run really fast, whenever you see a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness or some false teacher who wants to teach you some mumbo jumbo, jumbo, junk craziness, you, you, you start to see them, you gather your family, you just start running. You know, maybe call, text some people, say, get out, just start running. But the reality is that not all of us are fast runners or fast runners anymore. I'm not sure if I was a fast runner, but I'm not that fast anymore if I was. And, and that's really not practical. So I want to give you a practical way to avoid being taken captive by false teaching. This is a yes. Don't go there. Do go here. Do this. Be captive to Christ be captive to Christ. How does being captured by Christ keep us from being kidnapped by false teachers? Well, I think it's simple. If your heart is captive to Christ if you are captured by who Jesus Christ is and by what he has accomplished for you in his incarnation, his sinless, righteous, perfect life, his substitutionary, sin-atoning death on the cross, his triumphant, life-giving resurrection, if that captures you, and I'm playing with words a little bit here because the, the capture that Paul's talking about is kidnapping. Here, I'm talking about being kidnapped to what is good, but I think it fits, and it's helpful to think this way. If that captures you, if the gospel, if Jesus captures you, well, then you won't be taken captive by false teaching because you're already captive to Christ. I'll give you another illustration. If you have a big, delicious, satisfying home-cooked meal that fills your stomach, I, I, what, picture it, whatever it is. Picture a whole bunch of things. You've got lasagna on one side of the plate. It's a big plate. It's a huge plate right before you. Big piece of awesome lasagna. Some of that Mamma Mia's dipped in garlic butter bread it's sitting on the other side. You've got a steak. It's been slow cooked. Brisket on the side. Potatoes and sweet potatoes and oh, it's just fruits and vegetables. It's just overflowing plate of deliciousness. And you eat it all. Somehow, God blesses you with this, this almost superhuman ability to eat it all. And so you do well, then you will have no room in your stomach for anything else. You won't want junk. You won't want, you won't want any fast food. And I'm so thankful that my kids consider McDonald's uh, fake food. That's what we've, we've got them to, to learn. That we call it fake food. And so when they go out with Nana and Opa or Grandma or Grandpa, and they, they say, hey, let's go to McDonald's, our kids say, no, I don't want to go there. That's fake food, Mom and Dad told me. It's wonderful. Likewise, the Christian says, I don't want any of that fake teaching, that junk food that you're offering me, false teacher, because I am totally satisfied. I am full. I am enjoying Christ. And what you have to offer me cannot add to. It cannot supplement. It cannot give me more of what I already have in Christ. So you can take your mumbo-jumbo, fake teaching, false junk away because I'm not eating any of it. Christian, you need to know and remember who Christ is and what you have in him. Look again at verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Think about what that means, church. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in Jesus Christ. All that God is, every attribute, every piece and part, every percentage of the Godhead dwells in the God-man Jesus Christ. He is the creator who made all things, who all things were made for and who all things are held together by. He is the only sovereign over all, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this same Jesus Christ, who existed in eternity past as God the Son, before we knew him as Jesus Christ, took on human flesh, and is now accessible to you and to me because of God's grace in the gospel. Why would you want anything more? Then we come to verse 10, where Paul says, And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. You've been filled. Your stomach, your heart, your mind has been filled in him. you got no room left for this junky false teaching stuff. What a privilege, what an unbelievable honor, what a gospel reality we have and all Christians have. We're full. We're not missing out. We're not lacking anything in Christ. I want you to look at each part of this verse, each word, every phrase. And you have been with these four very regular English words. And you have been. There are two in the Greek, four in the English ESV translation. Paul tells us of the amazing connection between Jesus Christ, who the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in, and us. We have been filled in him. He's in us. Union with Christ again. Paul goes through it over and over and over again. Why would you need anything more? You've been united to Christ. He's in you. He is the source. Christ is the source of growth and blessing. He is the experience to have, for it is in Christ and in Christ alone that God has fully given himself to us and filled us with all that we need, himself. So when when a false teaching comes along and it's embraced, the Christian is in essence saying, God, you're not enough. What you have given me in yourself is not enough. I need the easy button. Yes, I know there's a temptation when you're suffering, when you're going through hardship, when you see a Christian who seems to be somehow benefiting from the crystals or from the the supposed ancient prayer, the the chant and they're wearing a toga and all that stuff that they're doing, and they're like, oh, it's it's a distraction. They're just being distracted. That's what it is. And then once they're done with that distraction, they're going to go to another distraction. It's going to be some cream. It's going, to be, it's going to be some crystal. It's going to be whatever it is. The next false teaching. It's all gimmicks. Why would you want to grab hold of a gimmick when you have the substance, you have the reality, you have Christ? Christians, whether they be in Colossae or Brazil or Africa or New Berlin, have been filled in Christ. There is a fullness that we already have that we don't need to wait for because Christ is in us. We're not missing some key ingredient to spiritual growth, some necessary spiritual experience to mature as Christians. If we have repented of our sins and we're trusting in Jesus Christ alone, if we have been born again by God's grace, we have access to all of Jesus. We're not in need of some other additional secret teaching. Because nobody can add to Jesus. Nobody can improve Jesus. He doesn't need to be renovated or updated like a house. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in him. Get your mind around that. He's all God. There's nothing lacking in Christ, and he's in you through your union with Christ, by grace through faith. That's why the false teaching in Colossae, and similar false teaching today, that claims secret knowledge and offers spiritual experiences, is so bad. That's why we can't be indifferent. Be like, all right, they're just kind of going off on another gimmick. We'll, we'll see when they come back after that. That gimmick fades and they come back for a while and then they go off. And, and that, I've seen that happen in this church. People grab a hold of some gimmick, some false teaching. They start to claim some thing that the scriptures do not tell them to claim. And then they're off. And sometimes they pull people with them. And then some of those people come back by God's grace or they go into another healthy, gospel-centered local church. But, but here's the problem. All this stuff diminishes the fullness of Christ in Christians' minds it starts to say, you know what? Christ isn't enough for me. I, I need that, that special thing, that, that other teaching that I've never heard and, and, and isn't found in the Bible. That's the secret. So no longer are they looking to Jesus, trusting in Jesus, whether it's through their suffering, their hardship, through their sanctification, whatever it might be. Now they look to find some easy button, some gimmick for help. I want to be clear that I'm not talking about going to medicine or doctors and, and that that's a bad thing at all. No, God has made us body and soul, spirit and physical, spiritual and physical. That's a part of it. So, so please do not be confused by what I'm saying. It, Jesus is more than enough for those who struggle with chronic pain and sufferings and use medicine and doctors to help them with that. So there's no contradiction that's, that's, that's totally valid and good, and I would encourage you to go to doctors, to get counsel. That, that is not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that to think that you need, Christian, in order to grow and mature in Christ, some secret teaching, so to have some spiritual experience, some second filling of the Holy Spirit, whatever it is, that is garbage straight from the pit of hell. Now, somebody very nice and beautiful, good-sounding, whatever, might tell it to you, But ultimately, the source of that teaching is from the pit of hell. So don't embrace it. Don't don't believe it. Jesus is enough for you, Christian. To be a Christian is to be filled in Christ. All that we experience from forgiveness, redemption, justification, adoption, all of these come to us because of the fullness of Christ. Because you're united to Christ, you're forgiven. He is your righteousness. You have been declared righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness. You are redeemed because Christ has redeemed you. You are justified because of Christ's work. You are adopted because Christ has brought you into the family of God. So there's no need for extra power, some new spiritual experience, some extra protection like what the false teachers were teaching then and false teachers are teaching today. Because as the last part of verse 10 states, Christ The one that you have been filled by is the head of all rule and authority. Just think about this logically. If Christ is the head of all rule and authority and somebody says they have an authority, a rule, a power that is not from Christ and is not rooted in Christ and is not Christ himself, where is that authority, that rule coming from? If Christ has it all, then you're not lacking because Christ has authority over all spiritual powers. This means that we don't have to be concerned about trying to gain more power, for no one is more powerful than Christ, who has all authority. Christian, if you have Christ, you have just as much authority, spiritually speaking, big picture speaking here, as some false teacher and maybe they wouldn't, obviously you wouldn't be thinking of, as you're thinking about this as a false teacher, but anybody who claims to be a Christian, telling you some, some junk about some spiritual experience or vision that they had, you have just as much, and I would think that probably you have more, because they may not be a Christian. Earlier in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, Paul tells us that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Christian, if he was able to free you from the domain of darkness, you don't have to fear demonic powers. Church, we are Christ's bride, and he is not keeping part of himself from us. He has given all of himself to us. You think again about that. We, we, we looked at it last week and considered it, it last week, that biblical illustration of marriage. When Christ said, I do, and he said, I do first, and then you said, I do back to him, he didn't say, I will give you more of me later on. I'm going to keep from you some of me. And then in five years or in 10 years or 15 years, when you reach a certain level of understanding, when you find the secret that, that you've, been, you've been kept, that I've been keeping from you, then you can have all of me. No, when he said I do, he gave you all of him. Commenting on this glorious truth found in these verses, one biblical scholar has said, this is a remarkable teaching that should be shouted from the rooftops. Church, I have not shouted it from the rooftops, but I hope that I've made it clear from this pulpit. Christian, you are filled in Christ. I'm tempted to shout it. You are filled in Christ. You don't need this stuff. No one can give you more than what Christ has already given you in himself. So don't be tempted by the the false teachers, the, the ancient spiritual practices that are not in Scripture. Don't go there. You have been filled in Christ. And who is this Christ? I'll leave you with this, this reminder in Colossians one 18 through 18-20 of who has filled you. Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross has filled you, Christian. Let's pray. Lord, help us to take this warning for ourselves and for those that we love, our brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, especially those who have gravitated towards false teachings, who think that, that they need some secrets, that there's some easy button other than walking by faith and trusting in you throughout the days of their lives. Help us to be a blessing, to be winsome, to be loving, to not not come across as angry and bitter, but to to come across as concerned and loving and winsome Christians who want Christians to enjoy all that they have in Christ and not to be distracted by these, these false promises of these false teachers. Help us as a church to be filled in Christ, knowing that we are filled in Christ. Help us to embrace all that we have in Christ, by pursuing and enjoying him, to open our Bibles and to treasure your words so that we treasure him more and more, understanding what he has done for us, his people. Father, may you work in us. Help us to, to have greater understanding of the gospel and to hold to it fastly, not letting anything come between us and Christ. Father, I pray for those in this sanctuary who are lost, confused, who are distracted by the shiny things of this world. May you open their eyes to see Christ rightly as their greatest treasure and delight. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.